hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. I have to admit, I'd never, as a reporter, grasped the impact that media coverage of a horrible crime like this can have on the loved ones of, of, of the victims. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goltar. Every once in a while, a trial can capture the attention of an entire nation— In 1995, nearly everyone was following O.J. Simpson. How important was it that that glove didn't fit? But at the same time, north of the border, Canadians were transfixed by another sensational trial, that of serial killer Paul Bernardo. Like almost everyone else, I was caught up in the horrible details of the crimes, devouring every bit of information I could get my hands on. And like everyone else, I was particularly fascinated by the couple at the center of the storm, Paul Bernardo and his wife, Carla Hamoka. They were both implicated in the sexual assault and murder of two teenage girls, Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. As more information came out, we learned that Paul Bernardo had been hurting women long before he was charged with murder. Women in the East End of Toronto, where I lived, were being attacked by somebody dubbed the Scarborough Rapist. There were police sketches plastered across the transit system. And the assaults went on for years. Then, quite suddenly, they stopped. And now we know why. Paul Bernardo got married, left the city, and escalated from rape to murder. These killings, this couple, they changed the way people saw their communities. And for the journalists who sat through every gruesome, graphic day of the trial, well, their lives changed too. Some of them saw the case as career-defining, going on to write books and work on documentaries. But for National Post reporter Tom Blackwell, he couldn't move on fast enough. And until we invited him to speak to us on this podcast, he's tried to avoid the story altogether. Why did you try so hard to avoid thinking about it all when it was over? It's funny because, you know, it was sort of in my career at that point, it was the biggest story that I had covered. And normally, you know, you would look back as a journalist on a story like that and sort of kind of revel in the details of it and and being at the center of of a story that everyone in the country was paying attention to. But yeah, in this case, uh, I really... Did try to forget forget about it. I didn't read any of the books that were written uh, about the case, and I, I think it was just because it was such a disturbing case, and it was all sort of laid out during the trial in, in a very graphic manner. I think that's probably why you know I've, I've tried to avoid the story since then. It went on for a long time too, right? I mean, how long were you actually covering the case? Yeah, I, I think I started in when Paul Bernardo was arrested in 1993. His trial ended in late 1995. 
I actually, uh, as, as much as I tried to avoid getting sucked into it in the years afterwards, in 2005, I actually ended up covering a hearing involving Carla Homolka, where the, the, the Crown was trying to impose restrictions on her after she was released from prison, which was ultimately unsuccessful. But uh, yeah, so, so in a sense, it continued all the way up to 2005. Paul Bernardo was charged with the murder of two teenage girls, Leslie Mahaffey, a 14-year-old from Burlington, and Kristen French, a 15-year-old from St. Catharines. Both were initially reported missing. And when the news came that their bodies had been found, the details shocked everyone. They were both kidnapped and held and and eventually uh, uh, murdered. And they were, you know... uh, it shouldn't matter, but but I think it does in terms of media coverage. They were both nice girls from middle class suburban families, and uh, you know I think that helps sort of draw attention to the case. Well, I mean, Carla and Paul's looks also drew attention to the case, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean that that's that was definitely one of the things that that made these crimes stand out. Is you have this quite attractive young couple again sort of middle class um white white yes <laughs> um and uh you know i think the way people saw it anyways rightly or wrongly is you know you wouldn't expect this kind of couple to to be involved in such heinous crimes Th- this couple had this sort of patina of normalness and and that sort of contrasted so much with what they did So this case is more than 25 years old. But as we were working on this, I realized that the details are still really upfront in my mind. And one of the things that really sticks out for me is the videotape evidence. And I mean, it's hard for people to imagine today, but getting stuff on tape wasn't common 25 years ago, especially crimes. We didn't see that happen, but it did in this case. So can you talk to me a little bit about those tapes? What was on those tapes? Yeah, I mean, uh, to your point, I mean, video is ubiquitous these days. You know, everyone's got a, a video camera in their pocket in, in the form of their their cell phone. Um, cell phones were very basic back then. You certainly couldn't take video with them. You know, it's probably one of the first trials in Canada where, where video evidence played a big part. And yeah, essentially they, they um, videotaped much of what went on when they uh, kidnapped Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Basically everything short of the actual murders but only members of the jury would actually see these terrible graphic videos. The judge ruled that spectators would only hear them. I I think in retrospect, (laughs) I consider this a good thing for me anyways, but, uh, you know, hearing was was enough to get a a pretty good sense of, of what they depicted. And when those tapes were played, like, did Kristen and Leslie's parents stay in the courtroom and listen? Did people leave? Like, did everybody listen? Or were there some people who just couldn't? Yeah, at, at times, as I recall, the parents did get up and, and leave. Certainly, was the, those were very, uh, you know, emotional moments. I mean, one thing that I, I thought was impressive, I guess, is that the jury members, who of course were watching the videos, managed to keep their composure and sort of grit their way through that, which uh, looking back on it is kind of an amazing feat, I guess. It's, it's interesting what, what ordinary people will do when they're, when they're put on a, on a jury. But um, yeah, it was, you know, very emotional, difficult moments when those videos were played. 
But even the discovery of those tapes were explosive. Where and how were they found? The police were told by Carla about the existence of these tapes, and they searched the couple's home in St. Catharines over a course of, I believe it was like more than a month. They sort of tore the place apart, but they never found the tapes. And then, you know, about a year later, Paul Bernardo's uh, initial lawyer, Ken Murray, quit the case, and lo and behold, turned out that he actually had the tapes. Um, he had been told by Paul Bernardo, like within a couple of days after the police had finished their search, where, where they were hidden in the house, went and retrieved them, and then held on to them for more than a year. Uh, eventually realized that that was not a proper thing to do and, and handed them over to Bernardo's new lawyer, uh, John Rosen, who then passed them on to the, uh, to the prosecution. Murray's decision to keep those tapes secret had explosive consequences. Unaware that they existed, the Crown struck a deal with Homolka. She would plead guilty to manslaughter, testify against her husband, and only serve 12 years in prison. But when those tapes were discovered, that image of Homoka as a battered wife who had no choice but to follow her domineering husband, it was suddenly called into question. How did the public react to that whole deal? You know, I remember it was called the deal with the devil. In terms of the, the public, I, I think people from the beginning reacted badly to that and considered it something of a scandal. You know, I, looking back on it, I'm not sure that the prosecutors had much choice. I mean, had they not had her testimony, if they didn't have the tapes, you know, their, their case against Bernardo would have been uh, much, much weaker. So in that sense, again, I would maybe look back towards the actions of Bernardo's original lawyer. He potentially could have prevented that, that situation. The investigation into these murders also revealed other horrible details. We learned that before Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, Homoka and Bernardo had killed another young girl, Homoka's younger sister, 15-year-old Tammy. Yeah, I mean, and in some ways I've, I find that to be one of the most shocking aspects of the case, you know, that uh, they, they weren't intending to kill her, but they, you know, they basically drugged and, and, and raped her. And then when that led to her death, uh, you know, covered it up, covered it up quite successfully, as it turned out, for a while anyways. So by the time Hamoka testified against her husband, we knew about the tapes and we knew about Tammy. But the deal had been struck. And despite an angry public, the Crown had no choice but to follow through. So how did she hold up, you know, on the stand? It, it was uh, it, it was a little unusual. I mean, she basically stuck to her story, but you know her demeanor was fairly flat. It's, I mean, she didn't come across as a as a woman who's you know uh, tortured by the fact that she had been battered and forced into helping commit these horrendous crimes. She it was just sort of an emotional flatness that that sort of in some ways kind of belied what what she was saying. I, I would say. Paul Bernardo testified too, didn't he? Uh, he did, yeah, and that's unusual. I mean, you know, often in serious criminal cases, uh, you know, the defense <laughs> does not call the uh, accused because that can be, uh, you know, minefield uh, for the defense. But 
he, again, sort of in terms of the narrative, he, he was fairly consistent. On the stand, Bernardo admitted to kidnapping and assaulting Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. But he implied that Homolka had killed them. But again, uh, he also came across as, as someone who was not sort of deeply emotionally affected by all this stuff that he had, you know, perpetrated, which was, again, sort of a, a striking aspect of his testimony. What about you? Was there a day that you remember being the hardest? I mean, the the, the videos were, were, were awful, and I, I think... It wasn't really one day of that. It was just sort of the the continuous effect of of hearing this stuff day in and day out that was really bad. One thing that sticks with me almost more than that is at the end of the trial, they had victim impact statements, and one of them was read by Leslie Mahaffey's younger brother. And that that was really hard to hear. How old was he at the time? I believe he was 11 years old at the time. Oh, wow. And what, do you remember what he said? Well, interestingly, he, he addressed his statement directly to Bernardo. But at one point he said, you know, people say that you're a monster, and, and I agree with that, you're, you are a monster. And he talked about how Bernardo had taken his sister from him, and that would be with him for the rest of his life. So many years later, the person that sticks out to me the most is Leslie Mahaffey's mother. On the night of the kidnapping, she had locked her daughter out of the house because she had missed curfew. For years, that fact was included in nearly every story you read about the case. This mother had locked out her kid. It was never said explicitly, but there was an underlying sense that part of the blame should fall on her mother's shoulders. I felt like there was this terrible sort of like victim-blaming stuff that went on with her mother that felt quite unfair and just sad considering she had lost her kid in such a horrible way. I mean, I guess it's, you know, shows you the, the, all the various sort of ramifications fallout from horrible crimes like this. It's not just the, the immediate victim, it's the, the people around them. And you could tell, I mean, that this is something that, that, uh, that, that stayed with her mother. know if it was just the fact that I was an early reporter and paying so much attention, but I felt like it was really the first time that the families of the victims became sort of a big part of the story. The French and Mahaffey family were very, very much the story at the time. Absolutely. And that was uh, a defining sort of aspect of the the case because they were, um, you know, getting involved mainly in terms of what sort of evidence would be accessible, I guess, to the public and to the media at the trial. And also they were very outspoken about about the media coverage uh, itself and when they felt that reporters had gone too far. And I have to admit, I'd never, as a reporter, quite sort of grasped the impact that you know, media coverage of a, of a horrible crime like this can have on the loved ones of the victims. Um, and uh, I certainly, you know, changed my sort of outlook on uncovering crime as a result of that. And, uh, you know, I, 
don't necessarily agree with all of the decisions the judge made at the request of the uh, families, but it was a learning experience for me to understand the impact that these things have on the on the loved ones of crime victims. So there's an academic named Frank Davey, and he wrote a book called Carla's Web. And in the book, he criticized the media coverage of the case, and he said that the coverage was insensitive, um, and then it kind of turned the killings and the trial into what he called entertainment. Do you think that criticism is warranted? I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. I mean, I, I hate to say it. I, I think it is. I mean, you know, I, I think that's kind of the the dilemma, I guess, in covering any kind of crime. Part of why people are reading these stories is a sort of a, a weird kind of uh, entertainment they get from it. On the other hand, I think when when horrible crime like this happens, I'm, I mean, I think the media has to cover it. I think we have to know that this kind of stuff is going on in in our society and and why and 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 what happens. So, I mean, I think I don't think you can ignore these things. On the other hand, you can't deny that there is an aspect of sort of cynicism on the part of the media in playing up this stuff because it garners a lot of readers and viewers and listeners, etc. How would you cover it differently today? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, um, uh, I'd probably try to avoid covering it personally. <laughs> I was going to say, I just wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't. I mean, I, I, I think I've, you know, covered the story reasonably responsibly. I mean, I'm sure going back and looking at, at individual pieces, you know, I, I could uh, certainly improve um, things. I mean, I, I think, you know, part of the sort of media story around Bernardo is this was, you know, at the height of the the newspaper wars in uh, Toronto, and uh, you know, especially the Toronto Star and Toronto Sun were battling each other. They each had two reporters assigned full time to the case from the time that Bernardo was arrested in in early 1993 until until well after the trial in in 1995. You know, I, I think when you have that kind of dynamic, two newspapers sort of battling it out. For readers, you know, there there is sometimes a tendency to perhaps get overzealous and and uh, do things that are not you know necessarily tasteful. Yeah, you forget the humanity behind the stories because you're focused on beating the other paper. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I remember the newspaper wars well. I was a summer intern at the Toronto Star, and there was nothing bigger than beating the Toronto Sun. Be the first to get that picture, that exclusive interview. That's what got you noticed. And I don't remember a lot of thought going into the ethics of the chase or the benefit of the win. I was a lot older and wiser before I even started asking those kinds of questions myself. And even today, it's something I struggle with. How to tell the true full story without turning someone's trauma into sensational entertainment. You want to play up the most dramatic aspects. I mean, that's what we do as news reporters. And, uh, you know, the, those, the most dramatic aspects of a story like this are also the most painful for the families of the victims. So the trial does eventually end. Bernardo's designated um, dangerous fender. He's still in prison. Where, where's Carla? Last we heard, she's living somewhere in Quebec. I have to admit, I haven't sort of, you know, uh, deliberately haven't really sort of followed that saga too much. But uh, there's been sort of, you know, sightings of her uh, every couple of years. And, and there's, you know, some media outlet does, does a story. And uh, yeah, I mean, she's living 
freely more or less sort of uh, anonymously I guess uh, in the in the sense she's not getting like constant media attention these days so yeah her life has sort of moved on it would seem because she served her time she got 12 years so she served her time and walked out the prison and from what I understand changed her name and got married and had kids yeah so essentially she got out of prison and that was the end of her her punishment uh, she was free to live her life however she wanted and so the trial ends for you guys. Were you free to live your life the way you wanted <laughs> or did this sort of stick with you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it definitely stuck with me. Um, like I said, I, I mean, I just sort of try not to really relive that period of my life as much if I can. I, I guess sort of we're all sort of uh, constituted differently emotionally and, and and deal with these things differently. I know that there were other reporters who covered the trial that were affected worse than me that, you know, uh, had marital problems, that kind of thing, um, who, you know, had nightmares and, and, and all that. Um, it was never as bad as that for me, but it was a very unpleasant experience uh, that I'm sort of not anxious to, uh, notwithstanding this interview, I'm not anxious to relive. But a lot of journalists did use the experience of covering it to write books or help their career move forward with it. But you really didn't. You just sort of decided you were going to walk away from it and not do anything about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, even if I was inclined to write a book about it, which I definitely wasn't, I mean, you know, the market was probably saturated already. Uh, you know, the uh, the Toronto Star and the Toronto Sun teams had book contracts sort of very early in the case. And of course, there's been numerous, uh, you know, TV series episodes and, and documentaries since then. But yeah, I mean, it just, uh, it wasn't something I was really wanted to sort of revel in or, or, or think about a lot. And yeah, it was, it was sort of a, a conscious effort to avoid it. And, and you know, I, there were times uh, when I started working at the National Post that I was asked if I could cover something related to the case. And I sort of tried as my best to to get out of it. You know, I find that over the years, even if it was a negative experience in sort of what I covered, it did impact the work that I did down the road. It changed how I might have covered something or how I would have written something or how I would have seen something. Do you find that this experience of covering that trial has affected who you are as a, as a journalist today in any way? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it has or did, you know, drive home to me the impact that what we write about can can have on people who are uh, involved in, in the story. Um, and, and in this case, you know, the families of murder victims. And I, I think, as I was saying before, you know, you, as a reporter, you get caught up in a story you don't necessarily think about that but I think it, it has sort of made me sort of always kind of try to remember how a story I write is going to affect the people that are involved in it or or peripherally involved in it even which we don't I think we don't always do and which is a natural instinct but you know any kind of story involving some kind of tragedy uh, I try to sort of consider who's going to be affected by, by this story I guess try anyways well, thank you. This was a really important and interesting conversation. I appreciate you bringing it back up for us again. Okay, well, well thanks for, for talking about it. Next time on True Crime Byline. 
It was a very strange scene when I got there. All the houses that we saw, they were empty. In 2013, Jason Magder got a very strange assignment. An entire community was missing. What he didn't realize at the time was that he had stumbled upon an extreme religious group called Lev Tahor, a group that some people were calling a cult. It is a long and convoluted story, but from what we know, it starts in Israel in the mid-80s with this then-young man named Shlomo Hellbrands, who's, by many accounts, kind of, you know, a very charismatic guy. That's next time on True Crime Byline. This episode of True Crime Byline was produced by Mitchell Stewart and me, Kathleen Goldshar with additional writing by our associate producer, Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Graphics and artwork design by Bryce Hall. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Special thanks to Rob Roberts, the editor-in-chief of the National Post, and Lucinda Choden, the senior vice president of editorial for Post Media. 